Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. We've got a great show for you today. Last week, I sat down with Tracy Shukart to chat about the current state of the oil and gas market. Tracy manages an energy portfolio for a family office and has built a large following through her at Shy Girl account on Twitter, where I first encountered her work. Our conversation covers a wide swath of the oil and gas market, from an impending wall of debt facing shale producers to how the ongoing coronavirus epidemic could impact oil demand, and more. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, just just before we before we dive into the the oil markets and, and energy markets more broadly, I'd just like to talk about you and your background. Uh, you've kind of had an unconventional path uh, uh, to to the oil markets and energy markets. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I this is actually my second career. <laughs> um, I actually started in the medical device industry, and I um, didn't like my job anymore. And I literally quit. I moved to Chicago to get into this industry. And um, I started at the Board of Trade. And literally at the time, there weren't a lot of women in the industry. So I just went knocking on doors until I got a job in a boiler room. (laughs) Um, Hocking energy uh, or hocking options on futures like literally calling 400 people a day and kind of just worked my way uh, up from there. Then from there, I moved on to the floor. Um, then uh, I moved into private equity um, and then to my current position um, at the family office. Yeah. And what drew you to oil specifically as the market that you really wanted to focus on and dive into? I, um, I had studied Middle East politics in college, and it, has, it always had interest me. And uh, I mean, to be honest, my very first winning trade was in oil. So it just kind of sucked. <laughs> I hear that's kind of happened with me when it came to, to getting into stocks, found the Motley Fool, and here's where I am today. Uh, you know, when you talk about uh, uh, you know trading oil and that sort of thing, you're kind of in the business of predicting changes in oil prices. So just from a high level, why do oil prices move up and down? Why do they change? I mean, I mean, I mean, it's, there's so many factors that go into the oil industry um, in itself. You know, there's obviously um, the commercials that are playing the market that are generally hedging themselves. There's the fund managers that, you know, have a position in the oil market. So the players within the oil market are obviously changing, um, which is also separate from supply and demand. Of course, we have supply and demand issues, right? Um, you have, you know, whether OPEC's cutting or not, how much the U.S. is producing. Um, and then you also have this kind of geopolitical aspect of it. You know, is, it, you know, is, is there a war in the Middle East? Is there a tanker on fire? Is, you know, is somebody shooting at uh, Aramco facilities and whatnot? So there's all kinds of things that happen on a daily basis that are moving this market around. Yeah, I think you know when you, you lay out all those different factors affecting the market, geopolitical, supply and demand, as someone who pays attention to this market, how do you decide what's important to pay attention to and what to ignore? I, I know you know we looked at those attacks in Saudi Arabia four or five months ago, and uh, you know the price spiked up quickly, but then and really fizzled out you know after a couple of weeks. How do you how do you decide what matters and what doesn't? I mean, if you're, I'm not a day trader. Um, I'm more of a I'm a position trader, so or 
a swing trader. So, I mean, you know, kind of interday moves, like if there's a tanker fire or something like that, and the market moves bucks, that doesn't really change my uh, perspective, you know, on direction. Uh, when things happen, you know, um, that are big moves, like $10 moves, when a Aramco happens, um, you know, you just have to kind of look at, you just have to start gathering information. I mean, I just started gathering information. What, you know, what's offline, what's online, what, where are people positioned, where people stepped out, are they going to reshort? You know, you kind of just have to go through all of those questions and all of those things and, you know, wait for more information to come out um, so that you can make a decision on whether do I think oil prices are going to continue moving higher or do I think that this is just, you know, a reaction, an overreaction to something that happened in the market. Yeah, so, so you just have to, to suss out the, 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 those factors at play. Um, I, I mean, there's not, there's no, you know, unfortunately there's no, like, equation for doing it. Really, you have to, you know, just gather, it's really about gathering information and kind of deciding where you already think the market is headed. Sure, and, and you know, as we talk about kind of where the market's he- headed and gathering information, uh, let's talk about uh, you know some kind of some subsectors of the market, uh, the energy market. I think that the big one everybody talks about today is shale. Obviously, this huge um, technological evolution in the the you know oil and gas industry in North America uh, has rocketed uh, the USA to the number one uh, oil producer in the world. As you look back over this over this decade, kind of how has the market changed with the onset of shale, and what should we be paying attention to there? I mean, there's several factors in that involved. You have to realize that there's different kinds of crude qualities, which people, you know, tend to forget. When you see, yes, we can be energy independent. No, we can't be energy independent. Why? Because all of our crude is light crude. And basically, all you can get out of a barrel of light crude is gasoline. Well, you need other products, too. So we're always going to have to be an importer. Um, With the onset of shale, you know, it's great for the U.S., but at some point, you know, you're going to have too much WTI in the market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you're going to oversaturate the market. We're not the only country with, you know, light oil. Light oil comes from Nigeria, et cetera. Um, you know, it's it's a good boon for the United States, but again, you're going to have sort of a saturation level at some point. Yeah, absolutely, and I think if you look back at the history of this industry, uh, you know, there's been this explosion in production, but we have seen very little free cash flow, uh, at least sustainable free cash flow, over exactly. time. And uh, I think we're starting to see that. And you've written some on this of of, of some of those bills coming due, the debt that was taken out uh, to to grow production in, in the middle middle of the 2010s is starting to come due uh, here in 2020. Uh, with with this debt coming due. How is this going to affect these businesses? Should we expect bankruptcies, insolvencies in, in the industry? Absolutely. I think you're going to see a lot more mergers and acquisitions. I think you're going to see a lot more um, bankruptcies. I mean, over since 2000, what did we have? 2015 to 2019, there's been over 200 bankruptcies um, in the shale industry in that giant, you know, growth years of, you know, of this market. Um, and I think, and that was before the set wall. It's coming due, which will is twenty twenty to and starts tapering off again in like I would say, you know, twenty twenty four 
and then really starts tapering off in uh, 2027. So I definitely think that, you know, we're going to see a lot more pain right now in this industry um, as far as where companies are headed. And, you know, they still, you know, we're still overproducing no matter how you look at it. You know, it's still kind of a wildcatter in industry. You know, the problem is now that you just don't have, you know, first you had all the banks throwing money at them, right? Um, that was like the initial shale boom. And then when we had the bust in 2014, right, banks said, forget it. We don't want to loan to you anymore. And the private equity guys were like, okay, we'll loan to you. So, you know, now all the private equity guys loan to loan to these people and they're still not, you know, they're, they're still not able to pay their debts, Right. So, and now they're facing this debt wall. So they don't, they kind of run out of options for people to throw money at them right now. So that's also another reason why I think we should expect more bankruptcies and more mergers and acquisitions. On the flip side, the good thing about it is, you know, now we've had we have Chevron and uh, Exxon who have moved into the shale industry, so we kind of have some adults in the room now um, that can kind of handle um, the booms and busts of of the shale industry rather than these, you know, young, you know, young guns that just came in there and started drilling. Um, so there is an upside. I mean, I think there's more pain ahead, definitely for the industry, but you know, after that, I think there'll be a lot of opportunity. Sure. I, th- I think when we look at uh, capital starting to, at least the willingness to loan to these companies or to, or to uh, you know, buy equity issuances from these companies is really starting starting to play out. And we're seeing that in uh, companies starting to be more focused on delivering free cash flow, which has put pressure on CapEx. Uh, and when you look at the shale industry with the decline rates on these wells, the need to constantly uh, pump additional CapEx into the business to continue growing production, as you see these these bankruptcies, this wall of debt coming due in the early 2020s, less less willingness to lend to these companies. What effect do you think that's going to have on production uh, in the shale oil patch in the next several years? Well, exactly, and I think that we're going to see a decline, which is what we need to see, right? You know, I think we'll see a decline um, in production, which will then increase prices because really, at these prices right now, I mean. Last year, we were basically in a $10 range, a narrow $10 range all year from, you know, $50 to $60, basically. Um, And within that range, I mean, most of these guys are not making any money. And, you know, a couple of these guys are making money. And then there's a middle part that's barely breaking even, right? So even at these prices, you know, these guys aren't making money. So eventually, um, it'll play out that... You know, production will slow down, prices will move up, same cycle happens over again. Sure. Uh, when we're talking about, I think, predominantly so far, the folks who are, you know, the E&P folks who are getting this this oil and gas out of the ground, when you look at these bankruptcies that are coming down to the lo- down the line, how do you... Uh, how do you think about the impact on the midstream folks? I think we, we just saw this past week one of the one of the first bankruptcies was a private equity bankruptcy, and one of the one of the primary drivers was getting out of these minimum volume commitments to midstream folks. So, so when you look at the the, the producers uh, starting to have financial issues, what do you think about the, the contagion as it goes down the supply chain to the midstream and even the, even the downstream refinery? Well, in folks? the downstream, yeah, I mean, they go, I, it'll, I, you know, everything floats down, right? Right. <laughs> Downhill. So, you know, it definitely will. Like I said, I just don't think that, you know, uh, you know, 
upstream, downstream, midstream. I think we're just, you know, as much as everything is sold off, it's, you know, all these, there's so many companies that are like at their lows. And everybody this year was like, it's the year for oil. It's the year for oil, right? And we kind of saw a lot of companies get, you know, bid up at the beginning of the year, oil prices. You know, it, after Aramco announcement in November started creeping up, it was the reflation trade, um, you know, prices started going up. People are like, oh, yeah, let's, you know, let's invest in oil. And, you know, all that has you know, reversed rather quickly. So um, I think that was preemptive or a little early sort of to get into, um, to get in to some of these companies. I mean, there are companies out there that, you know, are worth bottom fishing, but, you know, just kind of have to be careful on what you're choosing right now because I just don't see the bottom in yet. Yeah, and when you, when you say the company, companies to look at, I think the independents, obviously, folk, folks view it as, as very threatened. You mentioned private equity is in trouble. Uh, these these big integrated folks, would that be the place you'd, you'd be looking to go if you, if you had to jump in right now? If I, yeah, I would. Yeah. I would want something, you know, a major, you know, bigger integrated like you know, TXC or um, any of the majors, uh, except for XOM. Doesn't look really great right now. <laughs> Another question I had for you is you talk about the oversupply problems in the market, shale not being able to make money. This has been an environment where you look at you know Venezuela's production has come off the market really markedly. There's been issues in North Africa. And we've seen you know Russia and other folks start to get involved in Venezuela, up their production back. As we see these other other producers start to come on the market, do you foresee that affecting shale in a meaningful way? How should we think about these other producers that have just been kind of under underproducing the past several years for geopolitical and other reasons. Right. Well, you have to know, like, Venezuela is very heavy crude, right? So that's kind of, it's not really in the same category. It's not the same competition level. Like, we're, they're not competing for the same markets, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, that's another thing. That's another good point, kind of veering off the question a little bit. But, um, you know, you have to look at the fact that, you know, Oil prices are still depressed, and we have Venezuela off the market, basically. We have um, Iran, a, a lot of it's off the market. Granted, there's some on the black market. You have Libya now that just came off. I, I mean, there's a lot of places, right? There are a lot of reasons to be long oil here, but, you know, what it looks like on the geopolitical level. But, you know, if you look closer into it, you know, we've got we've kind of we've got a glut going on, and it's not a crude glut; it's a product glut. And that's the problem. I think people are overlooking right now. Yeah, and for someone for someone who isn't deeply familiar with this industry, can you unpack that distinction between a crude glut and a product glut, and what it means? So you have crude oil, right? So we're producing crude oil now. Generally, what happens? China does this a lot, right? To basically, you overproduce. So you overproduce and you have all this product on the market and it looks like oil inventories are going down. They are going down. But then the product market is flooded, which means that, you know, eventually it becomes so flooded that the opposite happens. You can't, you know, you can't refine anymore. Right. And then that leads back to um, a crude good. But I mean, you'll see that often. So right now we have too much product 
swishing around that you need to get rid of that to be able to, you know, start refining again. And, and so sooner or later, that needs to that needs to that needs to move out on the market, and then it, it, it you know it, it affects the, the entire the entire industry. Yes, yeah, I mean it's all it's all cyclical, you know. Um, again, on the geopolitical side, I think you know we mentioned that you know prices have been kind of in this range uh, for the past several years. Uh, during that time, we've seen OPEC cut and cut and cut. Uh, it, it seems to me that that OPEC's influence on the market is not not the way it's been in the past. How, how do you? assess the way OPEC's been able to influence the market and, and their influence as it is today? Well, I mean, I think obviously, you know, their influence is um, a little bit less. I mean, you're always going to have Saudi Arabia as a swing producer, but with, you know, the onset of, you know, Russia production is way up, even though they're part of the OPEC pack, they're, they have never hit quota. So, you know, they say, yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> We'll hit quota. We'll be okay, but they never do. Um, so you know, you have as Saudi Arabia scaled back. Russia's Russia's at a post-Soviet high right now, like over almost over 11 million barrels a day. And then you have the United States that went from in 2008 we went from five million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day in 2019. So you know, we've had a rush of oil on the market and OPEC itself can only cut back so much right right i mean yeah these are economies that are, that are fundamentally dependent on oil and gas you, you mentioned saudi arabia uh, it's another another kind of question geopolitically uh, how, how things are, are going to change uh, last year the saudi aramco ipo uh, as, as you look at that you know that company coming onto the market do you expect that will change saudi arabia's policy when it comes to uh, the oil market at all not at all. I mean, what Saudi Arabia is now trying to do with their Vision 2020 plan, it basically, they want to transition their domestic market over to renewables so that they can sell more of their oil, which kind of gives you a kind of a hint that, you know, if they see that, you know, the world is kind of maybe pulling away, you know, within the next 20, 30 years um, from the oil market, you know, you kind of have to watch watch what they do, not what they say. <laughs> if that makes sense, yeah. So, yeah. So they're trying to transition their own domestic economy away from the oil market, so they can sell more oil on the market because they are, you know, predominantly oil dependent. Um, that's another reason why they're trying to, you know, bring in tourism and things like that because they know that, you know, they need to get money from somewhere else than just the oil industry. Uh, another topic that's been big over the last year has been IMO 2020. Uh, this is was was built up as they're it's changing the marine fuel standards uh, for for shipping tankers. Uh, over time, folks really expected this to to show significant waves in the oil markets. Uh, as the, the the year the calendar turned over, though, uh, what are we seeing as far as the effects of IMO 2020 on, on the energy market? The surprise place where IMO 2020 is. Uh, adding pressure to is, um, is, is the shipping industry because, um, and it's for, for people that don't know, um, IMO 2020 basically means that the entire marine shipping uh, sector has to reduce sulfur emissions. Um, and there are three ways that you can do this. You can install a new motor, um, which is very expensive. 
for one to handle uh, low sulfur fuel oil. You can install a motor that runs LNG over oil, which again is very expensive, or you can install a scrubber, which is again, still expensive. So all of these options have been very costly um, and rising fuel prices of low sulfur fuel now are forcing shippers to pass this on to customers. So that's creating a drag on world trade, basically, because shipping costs are going up, trade is going down. So really, the effect that we're seeing it right now is in the shipping industry more so than in the uh, the oil industry. Right, and that these vessels need to need to retrofit uh, their 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 vessel to be able to to maintain uh, the the current standards. Um, th- those tankers over time, if I'm not mistaken, had been bil- burning this high sulfur fu- fuel oil. Were the only real source of demand uh, uh, for for that that substance uh, in existence. How-, how does that now that we have you know that oil that was being burned uh, by these tankers? What happens to that high sulfur fuel oil? H- how does it get distributed around the market? Well, I mean, people started they, people started producing a lot earlier. Like everybody thought that we, there was going to be this huge shortage and we were going to have this huge glut of uh, high sulfur fuel oil left over. But really the transition went much smoother than, you know, most people anticipated. And, um, there, you know, the, the, the ports have it available, not all of them. I mean, there are some ports that are lacking, you know, you have, you know, some outrageous oil prices like in Australia because they have that heavy oil that you need to make. I know the sounds you need heavy oil to make light sulfur fuel oil, but it's true. Um, so you have uh, grades like Pyrenees in uh, Australia that are going for like $100 a barrel right now. So you are seeing it in some markets, but, you know, not the markets that we're trading. And those definitely are not, those are very niche markets. Right. So, so, so overall, would you say that the, the IMO 2020, at least so far, has has been uh, much more tepid of a response than expected? I uh, think shipping's feeling it more than anything, or shipping customers. The customers are because they they they're having these costs tagged on to your shipping. I mean, uh, Merck just came out and they said, you know, they are adding fifty to two hundred dollars per container um, to their you know customers' bill. So that's where. I think it's being felt the most. Right, just international trade more broadly. Uh, uh, you know, on that topic, I wanted to talk about China. You mentioned earlier the the, the glut in in products. That's that's somewhat um, related to China. I guess the, the the big news in China right now, though, is is the coronavirus and the effect that that might have on global oil demand. As you're following this, obviously, it's it's very early days, and there's lots of fear mongering and that sort of thing. But how are you assessing uh, what this this outbreak could do for for energy markets? Right. So for first, I'm looking at right now. We are starting to see airlines cancel flights. So you know, I'm looking to see any kind of you know port closures, air airline closures, you know things that would affect jet fuel, even marine fuel, any kind of fuel demand. That's what I'm watching really closely. Today we had an announcement. I don't know. We've had what 12, 13 airlines all cancel flights to China. So it's going to depend how long are they not? You know, how long are they canceling their flights for? Because it takes, uh, for example, if you're going to travel, you know, say 10, 11 hours, you know, that flight on like a, like a, you know, a big plane, like a big 777, uh, that's 700 barrels per oil just on the way there, <laughs> right? So then multiply that by how many flights. 
and then round trip it. So it starts getting, you know, it starts getting up there. So those are the kinds of things that I'm watching. Also, if they have any port closures, meaning that can they not import oil? Can they not export their, their products? You know, those are really things we need to, to see uh, kind of what, what happens. So far, things kind of look pretty shut down until February 9th. So we'll have to see if that continues, you know, on to March you know, on to April, how, how long is this going to kind of last? Yeah, and when you think about the supply being off the market, obviously any amount of time where these flights are canceled, that's, that's you know, oil oil and gas that aren't being used. Um, but when you think about it, this thing stretching on, uh, when does it really become uh, super significant and start affecting the producers? They have to the change change their, their uh, you know, their business plans. How long before this really, really becomes a major, major serious disruption? You would need like six months. Generally, six months is the time for something to filter through, um, to filter through down to the production level. As far as you know, anything happening on the market or with oil prices um, today, really until producers really start to feel it. You know, that's why when markets fluctuate, you know, five dollars, producers aren't freaking out that much, right? Because it really takes months for them to start really feeling the crunch. Sure. Uh, last thing on, on China, uh, when you look at China's economy, obviously there's been the, the trade war going on and that, that slowed uh, production there. We saw the past couple years, uh, their auto sales have declined for the first time in, in, a, in a, you know, a better part of a decade, I believe. Uh, so as you look at China outside of the, outside of the epidemic uh, issues, you look at their economy, uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you view uh, their role in, in, in global oil demand and how, how that's changing going forward? that, you know, that's something that we definitely need to keep an eye on because, you know, China has been sort of the buyer of last resort right there. Um, uh, the U.S. consumes the most energy, um, the, the most oil in the world. Uh, but China is the fast, has by far been the fastest growing. Um, so any kind of decline in, you know, manufacturing or, you know, any kind of decline in their, in their growth is going to affect the global markets. In addition, you know, they started ramping up because they wanted 90 days to cover in their SPR. So they're near around, you know, 82 days or so. So we also are looking at, you know, when their SPR is full, is that going to significantly curtail their, their oil purchases? Or are they going to expand beyond that? So there's a lot of things. Uh, a lot of angles to look at uh, on on the China front, and we are seeing them slow down a little bit. So that does put a little bit of fear in in the demand issue globally. Sure. When you say SCR for folks that aren't familiar with that that acronym, that's just that's just their oil reserves, correct? Correct. Correct. Um, okay. Uh, moving on, moving on from oil, I wanted to talk talk briefly uh, about natural gas. We talked about shale. Earlier, obviously, uh, with a lot of these, a lot of these shale oil wells, there's just a massive amount of associated natural gas coming out of the ground. That's really put a lot of yeah. pressure uh, on prices in that market. When you look at natural gas, uh, how should we be viewing that market today? I mean, natural gas is sad, you know, <laughs> all around, all around. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat this one. Um, and, and the problem is, is that with, you know, with natural gas, is it's just simply overproduction. I mean, these guys are just they're overproducing and they're trying to get to the oil and the byproduct of a lot of that is natural gas. But we're seeing, you know, flaring um, 
like outrageous flaring, right? We're just burning it off because they're just really trying to get to the oil. So the business models are bad. And if you look at, you know, look at some of the companies like Chesapeake, or, you know, they're kind of, they're frightening, right? And we had, you know, just last year, um, you know, we had Chesapeake, Chevron, EQT, all have write-downs on their shale gas assets. Um, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better because we're, we actually have a global glut, <laughs> another glut of natural gas all around. So um, if you look at uh, global prices, you know, as far as Henry Hub, um, Korea, Japan and Korea, um, China, I mean, everybody's, uh, Europe, everybody's prices are, are down. We, we are close to the lowest. Um, well, Canada's lower than the U.S. Uh, but there are, you know, in, in some places, even like Waha, which is not, you know, uh, which is not the, the contract that most people are trading, but that traded negative this last year. So um, these guys need to, you know, they need to uh, stop drilling with like reckless abandon, and otherwise, this is this is what happens, right? right. Stock prices go down. They're oversupplying the market. Nobody's making any money, and it becomes a big disaster. Um, but, you know, again, eventually these companies get weeded out. Production slows down. Prices move up. Cycle starts all over again. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people talk about the, these uh, LNG export terminals getting getting built up to, to maybe, maybe uh, allow, you know, oil shale gas producers to realize higher, uh, higher prices you know, outside of the U.S. market. Uh, when you look at the, those opportunities there, can that save this market or help this market? Well, it's kind of, the thing is that you have that the part, the LNG market cycle is so slow. Um, so it gets really magnified on booms and busts. So export terminals really that are coming online, you know, that came online in like 2019 or coming online in the next couple of years were part of investment that was, almost a decade earlier when prices were much higher. Um, so that, and you have to factor in that spot prices really only account for like 25% of the market. Most cargos are like locked up in long-term, long-term contracts. So really we're going to need to see a little more bust in this market, um, I think, for it to, to pick up again. Okay, I want to transition now. Uh, talk more about looking forward. Uh, we talked earlier about that we're hitting this wall, this debt wall in shale. Uh, really expecting there to be some bankruptcies, some consolidation. Uh, as you look out three to five years past this this kind of debt wall period, uh, how do you view the oil market playing out? What, what's it going to look like? I think that you know, I think that you know, I think we'll be in a healthier position. I think oil companies will look healthier. I mean, we've gone from what oil uh, as a sector has gone from 20% of the S&P 500 to 4.5% in the weighting. So, you know, this industry is due for, you know, a little relief. It's just going to have to go through a little bit of pain first. So, you know, in four to five years, you know, and maybe not even that long, you know, I'm kind of looking out, uh, you know, in the three-year horizon, um, I think we'll be able to see kind of a, a healthier industry. I know that people bring up electric vehicles and renewable transitions, and I, you know I agree that um, that's a great way to go. But I don't foresee that 
really making a dent in any kind of oil demand, you know, within the next, you know, 10 years. Sure. Another thing we, we talk about hitting this, hitting this debt wall, bankruptcies in shale. Do you think the United States, 10 years from now, will still be the world's largest crude oil producer? And why or why not? I don't, I, I don't, hopefully we'll, you know, hopefully it'll be a little bit more balanced. You know, I, I mean, I think it's, it'll depend on what the supply and demand, it, you know, team looks like at that point. Right. But, you know, I don't think that production is going away here anytime soon. And I don't think we're going to, you know, drill through our reserves within the next five years by any means. So, you know, if we could level off a little bit, I think it would, again, be beneficial to the market. But, I, you know, U.S. is going to maintain being a strong producer. You're a incredibly uh, active Twitter user. How do you use Twitter on a day to day basis? Um, I use Twitter. Well, I, I mean, I use Twitter for uh, research, for for one thing. You know, I, I mean, I get a lot of research reports on a daily basis and whatnot. But, you know, I follow, I, you know, I use it for a news curator. I follow a lot of reporters uh, and things like that. And a lot of things I just, you know, tweet out, you know, it's kind of like a diary, right? Sure. <laughs> so, you know, um, tweet out charts or things like things that I'm, currently looking at but it really is a good um for up to the minute uh news i mean usually it you get something off twitter and i have a wire service too um but you know twitter is just as fast as the wire service so you know i think it's great for people that maybe don't have a wire service or don't have you know um Refinitive or or bloomberg or you know i think you can kind of curate your twitter experience um in the investment world for that no matter you know what your sector is what you're trading sure and then uh if someone wanted to learn about the oil markets was, was new to this industry is there any place place you would point them as a good resource to, to get up to date and learn uh, what what matters in this industry I would get I would get the book um, by uh, Morgan Downey, Oil 101. If you're really just starting in this industry and you really kind of want to get a grasp of what it all entails in a big way, there's some parts that you know when they there's some parts that are a little scientific when they go into oil grades, but overall it's a really good book to kind of get a grasp of everything that's involved in in the industry. Um, and then there, uh, you know, if go to websites like uh, OPEC and EIA and um, IEA. I mean, EIA is a gift um, because the United States is one of the only uh, countries that like track, literally tracks everything that has a government agency that literally tracks imports, exports, you know, between paths. I mean, in-depth detail. Um, so and that all that information is free. So it's a great resource. Yeah, I can echo that as well. I mean, just their, just their charts are super valuable for me as I'm trying to put together information uh, for these podcasts or just for own research. Where can people find your work if they if they want to stay in touch with, with what you're doing and uh, you know the things you tweet out on a day to day basis? Where can they find you? So I'm at at Chigirl, um, C H I G R L because somebody had G I R L, so I didn't get it, and they haven't tweeted since. They haven't tweeted once since 2009, and I want that handle. <laughs> I didn't get it. Um, 
So I'm there. I do have a website, shygirl.com. Uh, I don't really keep it up to date as much as I should. Um, but there is a bunch of information on there if you want to go take a look at it. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and we hope to have you on again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Tracy Shukart, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!